Good morning. Give the children just a second here to make their way out. Well, if you can believe it, we only have two weeks left in this sermon series. And this week we will be preaching on the prodigal, or the, nope, that's what we just sang about, the parable of the two sons. And there's been some confusion here, which I'm sure I'm the source of. And the parable of the two sons is different than the parable of the prodigal son. However, there are two sons in the prodigal son. And next week is the, Daryl will be preaching on the parable of the lost sheep, which if you've ever looked at Luke 15 altogether, is the, it's the chapter of lost stuff. That's what we refer to it as because it's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son, otherwise known as the prodigal son. Uh, but since we can't preach on every parable in this series, or not even close to half of them, uh, it's great that we get to worship uh, in the context of so many of them. So, what is the parable of the two sons? Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you have kids? How many of you have multiple kids? Good. You'll understand this example. If you have two, two children and you go to the first and say, I want you to go clean out the garage, and they say, no, I'm not doing that, and they go away, and then later change their mind and go clean the garage, and then you go to your second child and say, I want you to clean the garage, and they go clean it, or they, they say, oh, yeah, I'll go clean it, and then they don't clean it, which one of them did what you wanted them to do? For, uh, you sound really unsure. You want the garage clean. You know that, right? Okay. So if the first one says, I'm not going to do it, and then they clean it, which one did it? First son. Okay, great. You're not going to have any trouble interpreting this parable, but you are not going to like the application of it. So, because one of the themes of this parable is on action, and I was trying to, I was looking for a couple different examples as pastors are want to do throughout the week. And I found this from this author named Emily Gould. I've never read her. But in 2010, she had been kind of on the rise. She had a few books published and she got her first ever six figure book deal. It's a big deal. You don't make a lot of money writing books ordinarily, but she got a six figure book deal. And following that, immediately following that was a two year stall in writing. And when she reflected on why, she said she was too busy, quote, spending time on the internet, end quote. But she continues, she says, in fact, I can't really remember anything else I did in 2010. I tumbled, I tweeted, and then I scrolled. This didn't earn me any money, but it felt like work. I justified my habits to myself in various ways. I was building my brand. Blogging was creating, was a creative act. Even when curating it by reblogging someone else's post was a creative act, if you squinted. It was also the only creative thing I was doing. Or you could uh, look at it, this is a popular social networking site called Facebook. You may have heard of it. Okay, at least five of you have heard of it. Okay. Now, it emerged with some controversy. There was a movie about it from my favorite uh, screenwriter. Uh, and... In the movie, they cover the court case that followed the launch of the website where these two two men, the Winklevoss twins, sued Mark Zuckerberg because they claimed they had the idea for Facebook. 
And they said, you know, we had the idea, we came to him for help, and then he just made the website and now has all this money, so we're going to sue him and win money. And they won uh, $65 million from him, which that's, I, it sounds like a lot of money to me. But if you consider, in the long run, uh, June, this June, 2018, Facebook stock fell, and Mark Zuckerberg personally lost $18 billion of value in one day, taking him to a devastating $66 billion in value. <laughs> now, the Winklevoss twins had this great idea, right? It was uh, kind of a half an idea, and they felt like, well, we've really done something here. But the problem is they hadn't done anything. And in the movie, they, uh, they, you know, bring this up with the lawyer and Mark Zuckerberg says to them, if you had invented Facebook, then you would have invented Facebook. If you had done it, you would have done it and it would have been done, but it wasn't done. So I did it and it's mine. You follow that logic? See, thinking about something isn't the same as doing something and I read a book uh, last year, and it's a fairly recent book, called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday, who is not a Christian. In fact, I think the best classification for him is a 21st century Stoicist. It's the Greek school of philosophy, uh, but he advocates it, and we don't agree with Stoicism, right? Christians are not Stoics, although we quote them occasionally. There are a couple quoted in the Bible. And so we don't wholeheartedly disagree with them, but we, uh, you know, we have some overlap. And so here are three quotes from his book that really struck me. He said, one, talk depletes us. Talking and doing fight for the same resources. So he said, whether you decide you're going to talk about doing something or do something, those use the same resources, your your time, your energy, your brain power. So whether you're talking or doing, same resources. And then he says, after spending so much time thinking about something, explaining something, talking about a task, we feel that we've gotten closer to achieving it. But you haven't. Then he says, the more difficult the task, the more uncertain the outcome, the more costly talk will be, and farther we run from actual accountability. And so his prescription is when you understand what needs to be done, you sit in silence until it's done, you actually do it because talking about doing it will make you feel like you're closer to it. But when you go to do the task, finally, eventually, you will not actually be any closer to it from having talked about it. In fact, there's a book that came out a few years ago called Working on My Novel. And it's a book composed of social media posts from writers who are busy not writing. <laughs> now, I'm not going to go read that book. It doesn't really, I think I just got my whole value out of it right there. But we see the problem here. And so I'm going to invite you to the, the bulletin, once again, my fault, is correct in the title of the sermon, but the text is actually going to be found in Matthew 21, 28 to 32. So this is a, an interactive service. You scratch that out and you write Matthew 21, 28 to 32, and I'll read it to you and it'll be on the screens. So... Uh, if you are, um, don't feel like navigating uh, the scriptures, you know, it'll be up there for you. And so before we read, I'm just going to open us in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together in fellowship uh, and uh, receive 
the salvation that you offer so freely with thanksgiving and with uh, mercy. We now ask that you would uh, open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to receive the word that you have written for us this morning. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. And so we begin. It's uh, Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight to 32. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first son and said, go and work in the vineyard today. And he said, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. And so I think this, uh, hopefully the garage cleaning parable that I've given you at the beginning helps to interpret this, but there have been a few uh, interpretations. And I like offering these to you not to bore you, although I'm sure that's a possible side effect. But I just want you to be able to recognize we're going to see from the text what Jesus means here. But I read a bunch of commentaries spanning 15 or 16 centuries. And I'm going to read to you a couple interpretations. Some of them are close. Some of them are not. Uh, and so the first one is this. It's, it was allegorized saying that both sons are Gentiles un- operating under what's called natural law. So they're operating, you know, Romans 1 says everyone's accountable to God because God has made himself known through nature and you can understand and perceive, you know, what is right and what is wrong. Even if you're not a Christian, you can see God's law working throughout the world. And so it's saying, this is how you judge people with natural law. That's not correct. But another uh, commentator in the 19th century in Germany said uh, that the It's just a simple contrast between saying and doing. That's the end. That's what he says it's all about. Another one says, well, this is actually about the yes-sayers to Jesus who are initially sympathetic to his ministry, but later unfaithful. And then there's a final one who says, um, both sons equally shamed the father in this parable. That's not correct. And we can figure that out by reading the rest of the passage. Uh, but when you go to study the Bible or a parable, I would advise you to open multiple, you know, as many resources as you can find. Even if you have two study Bibles, they will not necessarily say the same thing. And so it's helpful to see everything that's going on here. But the other thing that's helpful is one of my favorite words that you should know by now. It starts with a C. Context, the choir knows. And they thought it was going to be choir. It's my favorite word with a C. But it's not. It's up there. But the context going on in Matthew 21 sheds so much light on the parable here. And so I'm going to go through it very quickly and just tell you what's going on. Matthew 21, 1 through 11 is what we refer to as the triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem and uh, on the back of a donkey and they have this uh, celebration and everyone's rejoicing. Well, most people are rejoicing. And then in Matthew 21, 12 to 17, is Jesus cleansing the temple. And so what is happening when Jesus cleanses the temple? He goes in and chases off the money changers who are cheating people uh, in the house of worship. 
And this is a condemnation on the temple or a condemnation for a lack of obedience in the temple. So what he sees here is a lack of obedience. He says the Jewish leaders, the people he's talking to in this passage, uh, they do not stop or prevent bad things from happening. So they said it's kind of, that's passively, you're not, you know, you just sit back with your arms crossed while things happen and you know they shouldn't be happening, but you sit back and watch it. Then, Matthew 21, 18 to 22, Jesus curses the fig tree. You remember that? He goes to eat from the fig tree. The fig tree has no fruit. And so he says, what good is this tree to me if it's not producing any fruit? That's a metaphor for for Israel. He's coming to Jerusalem seeking the fruit of his people, you know, doing the work of God, and he's been found lacking. And so the first section there, cleansing the temple, is... The, the Jewish leaders have not stopped or prevented bad things from happening. And here he's saying, not only have you not stopped other people from doing that, you haven't done what you should to produce fruit. And so Jesus curses the fig tree. And then in Matthew 21, 23 to 27, immediately after this, Jesus' authority is challenged. And so don't you love this? Jesus says, you haven't stopped bad things from happening. You haven't done good things. And now you want to challenge my authority because I'm pointing that out to you. Now that's classic, right? If you want to keep the to- the parenting analogy going, that's toddlers, right? So uh, you challenge her, you know, it goes all the way through middle school. Trust me, I know I was a youth pastor for 10 years. If somebody doesn't like what you say, they're going to challenge your authority. Uh, even if they know on some level what you're saying is true. And so you see though in Matthew 23 that the context here, he's speaking specifically to the chief elders and priests. And so we pick up our parable once again in Matthew 21. Actually, before I do that, I'll give you one more. There's Matthew 21, 33 to 45, which follows this parable. And it's the parable of the tenants. And so this is the parable where he says, you know, he sent prophets all along throughout history and you killed them. And then the owner of the vineyard sends his son and the workers killed him. And by the way, that happens later in this week that he's living in, that they kill him. And so we see a theme emerging here, right? This is Jesus's interaction with uh, the people of Israel, but not the people, of, not all the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel. And he's just landed in Jerusalem, which is their uh, their headquarters, if you want to call it that. That's their home base So this is the source of Judaism, and this is the leaders of Judaism, and these are condemnations on the leaders of Judaism. And so, uh, and then it says in verse 45, and this is great, the chief priests and elders perceived that he was speaking about them. So, even they can figure this one out. They know that the parables being told in this chapter are about them. The fig tree is about them. They may not agree with it, but they can figure out what Jesus is trying to say here. Read between the lines. So in Matthew 21 to 28, Jesus opens this parable in a very interesting way. He says, what do you think? Right? So he's inviting the chief elders and priests to interpret what he's saying. And what this actually does, and it's what I warned you about earlier, said when you understand that, you know, you want your first son is the one who actually cleaned the garage, so you like him. But what it's saying is if you are the second son and you acknowledge what's going on in this parable, then you have just, it's an act of self-condemnation 
is the best way to say it. You're essentially agreeing with with Jesus's assessment of what he's seeing if you um, if you answer correctly, which they do. And so in verse 28, he says, you know, what do you think? And it's an invitation for them to assess their own situation as Jesus sees it. The father tells the first son, go work. And uh, he says, I will not. But afterward, he changes his mind and went. Now, the phrase changes his mind comes from a Greek word. Does anybody know just off the top of their head how that is otherwise interpreted? It's repent. Wow. Okay. We have budding Greek. Well, I know you know Greek. That's not a, that's cheating. Don't listen to Mike Parker. Um, I'm kidding. Um, it is the word for repent literally means to change your mind. So you could even interpret this. He says, no, I'm not going to go do that, but he repents and does it. And so that's not only a great definition of repent, that's a good illustration of repenting, which is, by the way, what Jesus is celebrating here. And in verse 29, it goes on, and the first son, he says, you know, I will not, he repents. Then he goes to the second son in verse 30. The first, the second son says, I go, sir. Now, you don't want to be the church of the second son, right? You don't want to be the church that says, we go, sir, right? We're going to go do that, but we're not going to get around to it. We're going to verbally ascribe to it. We're going to say we're going to do it. We're going to profess our faith, but we're not going to then do anything about it. We're going to be um, the church of I go, sir, which is not what you want. But So he says, I go, and then he did not. And then in verse 31, Jesus asked the religious leaders of Jerusalem, which one of them did the will of the Father? And they said, the first. And Jesus says, you're right. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, why would he say that? It's interesting, right? Because this is something that occurs quite a bit. In fact, you're going to hear it again next week because that's what all of the parables in Luke 15 are about. Jesus spends so much time hanging around with sinners and tax collectors and drunks that people start to accuse Jesus of being a drunk and a sinner. No one accused him of being a tax collector, but uh, two out of three, still not a great reputation. And so what Jesus is saying here is, one, he's explaining his own behavior, and he's explaining why his own behavior is necessary. It's because the people of Israel have not done what they are to have done, and this is actually not an original message if you... Um, were to, I don't, don't flip here with me, but you can write this down if you're interested. Isaiah 29, 13, which is quoted in Matthew 15, 8 through 9, says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible. In fact, You'd be hard-pressed to go read any one of the prophets, the minor or major, and not see this as a theme of giving lip service to God, saying, oh, we are going to do what you would have us do, and then not doing it, and then the prophet pointing out to them, and how do most prophets' lives end? Not well, is the answer. People don't like hearing this message. Understandably so. 
And so there are three things we can take from this. First, the parable is an accusation that the leaders of Israel claim to serve God, but do not. Or it's an accusation that they claim to serve God and they have not yet begun to do that service. So it's not an indictment over all Israel, which is what some interpreters would like to say, but he's specifically speaking to the leaders, chief priests and elders. Uh, and he certainly had the opportunity to indict all of Israel if he wanted to, but he's speaking to their leaders. Secondly, it shows a continuity between John's message and Jesus's message. Now, this is an interesting thing here in verse 32. It says, for John, John the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds. You did not afterward repent. And what was John's message? Repent and believe. So John, that's a really simple sermon. He preaches that every time you go see John the Baptist. Repent and believe. And Jesus is saying, uh, if you didn't believe him, why would you believe me? In fact, there's another uh, in Lazarus and the rich man, which is another parable we don't have time to cover. Uh, it says in there, it says, you know, you didn't believe Abraham or the prophets or anyone that I sent you. So why would you believe Jesus when you hear him? Now, that's a harsh sounding message. Um, but that's the continuity here is that uh, Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the f- perfect picture He's um, the religion of Israel at its finest, at its peak, uh, but it's not being received as such. And then third, this is also a defense of Jesus' fellowship or identification with sinners. The leaders of Israel operated with this false sense of holiness, meaning if I distance myself from sinners, then I can't possibly be considered a sinner. That's not how Jesus, Jesus or God defines holiness. And so there are three things here that we might Consider applying, and trust me, I have more than that, but the first is this, very simply, God requires productive, obedient living from his people. God requires productive, obedient living from his people. Second, now this one hurts, right? Because this, this one's for the church. Secondly, churches frequently push for membership or profession of faith, but they allow for a separation between believing and doing. I've never been to a church, and I love churches, I love our church, but I've never been to a church that doesn't feel the weight of that temptation. That it would feel really good if we had a lot more members or if we got more people professing, saying that they believe. But what Jesus is concerned about in this parable is saying, you got all, you got a whole city of people here who say they believe, but it's an empty fig tree. There's no fruit. And so, uh, that's the second thing. And then the third thing here, and this is really important, especially as we consider uh, the big application going for our church in Advent, initial responses are not ultimate responses. Initial responses are not ultimate responses. The first son says, no, I'm not going to do that, and then he does it, much to the surprise of his father. And just because someone has been presented with the gospel or been offered a seat at church next to you and they say no does not mean that's a permanent no. And just because you think you they're going to say no doesn't give you an excuse not to ask them. And so, now this is a hard message, right? This is, Daryl talked about this when he did the passage of the sheep and the goats. 
This sounds a lot like a works-based righteousness. Except what we have to remember is that Christians are called to be people of action, but it is fundamental to the gospel that we recognize that all Christian action is a response to God's prior action. God's act of salvation. Jesus has provided everything we need. He has reconciled uh, us to God and each other, and therefore we go out reconciling ourselves to others, bearing the fruit of the gospel, but we don't confuse the fruit with the root. The root of our salvation is not the things we're asked to do. It's not the fruit of our labor, but it is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, as we consider being people of action, we're talking about for Advent, our goal here is to make sure 250 people in Cincinnati, somewhere in College Hill, receive a personal invitation to our church for Advent. And we want to do this not because we're obsessed with numbers, not because I need more faces to look at while I'm preaching, but because we want these people to come to know Jesus. And we want them to feel warm and welcome, uh, especially as we approach Christmas. And so I've come up with five tips for you. Now, these are these are the action tips, right? So one, if you invite someone to come, don't just invite them to come. Invite them to come with you. You see the difference there? One's an invitation to come, another one is to come with you to sit as a friend, save them a seat even, describe to them where you sit, or ride together. The second is this, if you could take people to uh, you know brunch or lunch or even coffee in the atrium afterwards. If you're ordinarily a second service person in first service, you may have noticed that sometimes our coffee is gone by the end of second, but we're going to fix that. We're going to be plenty of space, plenty of resources, and you don't even have to spend money. The third is this, invite someone on a specific day. Say, you know, there's something going on that you would really, really enjoy. Uh, and instead of just saying, here's my church, come to it sometime, hand them a postcard and move on, invite them to something specific. Now, I don't want to uh, em- embarrass him, although this is a, a great example, uh, but Mike and Mark and I were having lunch down at the taco place in Northside this, uh, a couple weeks ago. And we had a piece of organ music on the table, which I guess they don't have every day. And our waitress, who's, you know, um, in her early 20s and, you know, kind of hip and cool, she says, oh, is one of you a musician? I said, well, Mike and I are kind of, sort of, but Mark is really a gifted organist. And she said, organ, that is so cool. And we were like, really? (laughs) Did not expect that. But, you know, it happens, it actually happens a lot. And Mark was very faithful. He said, hey, you know, this is the service time. This is the location. You know, he started telling her about the features of the organ. And the principle here is this. If you can invite someone to a specific occasion or connect something they're already interested in with something we're already doing, that's a personal invitation. That's showing I know something about you and I care about you. In fact, why don't you explore it a little deeper by connecting that here? And so connect them with one of the interests that's going on. That's number four. And then number five is this, is what you're really doing here is you're moving acquaintances to friendships. So let this invitation be a deepening of your relationship. This is not, you don't invite them here because you hope they make a friend here somewhere else. You're their friend here. If you invite them, and so if there's, uh, you know, someone who's, uh, bags your groceries every single time and you got a relationship, you small talk every time, but they kind of know your name, they know enough about your life, You know, what does it take to move that relationship to the next level? Or 
perhaps your next door or across the street neighbor that moved in a year ago and you're friendly, you wave at each other, what would it take to add 30 seconds to that conversation in three minutes and then, you know, invite them to church sometime? So just be thinking along those lines. And uh, I'll remind you of that challenge at the end of the service during the announcements. But now I want to close in prayer. And I'm going to do something a little different. Some of you may have even been thinking of this passage while I've been preaching. But James 1, 19 to 25, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to read this as a prayer together, and then I'll say amen. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of humans does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, they will be blessed in their doing. 